This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. I'm Alex Rawls, and this is my podcast about Christmas music. Today, I'm back with a conversation with Asleep at the Wheels founder, Ray Benson. I hadn't planned to take time off, but this year, Jazz Fest in New Orleans returned for the first time since 2019, and I had so much work to do connected to that that I couldn't get it and 12 songs done. So I gave the podcast what I intended to be a two or three week break, and then life kicked in and enough low-grade obstacles got in the way that I finally decided to stop fighting the universe and go with the break until this week when my daughter returned to school again. Seemed like a good time to get back in the saddle, and here I am. This week's interview emerged from my coverage of Jazz Fest. The Austin-based Western Swing Band played Jazz Fest this year as it belatedly tours and supported its 50-year anniversary album, Half a Hundred Years. The album features appearances by a number of Asleep alumni, including founding members, as well as special guests. I think their story is interesting because these days we tend to think of audiences for one type of music not being there for other kinds. And in the late 1960s, you'd think Western swing and American roots music lived in such a different world from Woodstock Nation. It's raining in New Orleans. You'd think that the people who playing Western swing, American roots, lived in such a different world from Woodstock Nation that they'd struggle to find an audience. But that wasn't really the case. We talk about that, and as well as the band's evolution, and the role of guest stars on the band's albums, including one of Benson's favorite guests, longtime friend Willie Nelson. We also talk about Asleep's Christmas albums, Merry Texas Christmas Y'all from 1997, Santa Loves to Boogie from 2006, Lone Star Christmas from 2016, as well as the Christmas songs they recorded more than once and why they did that. To get started, let's go back to Asleep at the Wheel's 1973 debut, Coming Right At Ya, where they recorded the Ernest Tubb honky-tonk classic, Driving Nails in My Coffin. I'll be back on the other side with Ray Benson. My sweetheart is gone and I'm so lonesome she said that she and I were through So I started out drinking for pastime Driving nails in my coffin over you And I'm just driving nails in my coffin Every time that How's touring been? Uh, different, you know, we uh, uh, three weeks ago we all got hit with COVID Six in the <sighs> band when we were up in Tennessee So everybody's better now, but it was a uh, it was a couple of rough weeks, but other than that, it was great. You know, hopefully uh, this next surge will not be so bad. And we were all vaccinated, so the the you know the recovery was uh, within a week. Oh, good. Anybody get get badly sick? Anybody get? Oh hit yeah, on? yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Not hospitalization sick, but you know, sick, sick. You sure. know, just on their ass. You know, and. Uh, different symptoms, fevers, et cetera. Wow. Yeah. But like I say, you know, it's, uh, it's here to stay. So we're going to have to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's gotta be scary as a band that has sort of so much of your, so much of your livelihood is the road. And, you know, and the reason, uh, the reason you play is to play live that to have that be challenged had to be, has to be difficult to deal with. 
well, yeah, you know, look, I've been doing this for, for 50 plus years and it's just, you know, it's, it's always something. So <laughs> you just, you know, it's a, it's either the weather, a pandemic stuff you can never assume. So we just soldier on, you know? Yeah. So last year you released uh, half a hundred years, which commemorated 50 years in music was, 50 years actually last year or was last year the year you did it because you could actually get out and tour again? Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> yeah. 2020 was the 50th year, but you know, of course the great, um, questions when the year 2000 or the year 1900 showed up, there were those who said, well, you can't celebrate, uh, uh, on, on January 1st, 2000, because you haven't finished the, 50 years you know but that's just rationalization so whatever uh, but yes that's what happened was on march the 7th 2020 i was sitting right here we got a film crew a studio all set up here and uh everything stopped you know people were coming in from australia california vermont nashville uh, canada and they all went, oh, we can't, we're not getting on a plane, you know, and I went, everything got canceled. And so uh, what was originally planned is not what happened, but we were able to then regroup in 2021 and uh, uh, get the album done and, and get out, get, and then we, in October of last year, we were able to tour with the, uh, uh, some of the original members and alumni. It was, it was really incredible that the, the three of us who have sung together, Chris, uh, Leroy, myself, the parts were just all there and we just opened our mouths and sang, you know, and, uh, same with Danny on live, Danny on the fiddle. It was, you know, and, uh, Floyd, it was just, uh, it was amazing to just uh, realize, you know, that, uh, the, the bond you have, musical bond you have with people uh, is uh, probably uh, permanent. You know? you know, time has so focused our attention on rock from that period that I think a lot of people miss how important, uh, you know, American Roots music was at the time and that, you know, Grateful Dead started off as, you know, fascinated by bluegrass and incorporating bluegrass into what they did. And... So when you were starting this, were you, was there a scene like around you that was doing this or, or in your moment, were you the oddballs who were pursuing roots music in this way? Uh, Commander Cody was really uh, the other band that, that was doing what we were doing and with their own different slant, they had more rockabilly influence, although we did rockabilly music too. Um, but they were quite an inspiration. And also the Flying Burrito Brothers, Graham Parsons and, um, you know, Chris Hillman, the Birds, uh, they were quite an influence and were doing similar things in a different vein. And I think that's what the whole idea was that we were all doing uh, this from guys. We, we were in the generation that had grown up on, on rock and roll and and other things you know i had great jazz education and and rhythm and folk music was big i was a folk performer as a kid 
And uh, but we all had this idea that country music could be more than um, the small area of the population that it was about. About in other words, southern, rural, um, conservative, Christian, this and the other. So you go, well, wait a minute. You know, this is our music too. This just doesn't belong to this. This is stuff we and I think the Love and Spoonful also they were so uh, uh, in my life uh, influential on uh, just their song Nashville Cats. I think turned on a lot of musicians of our age onto who was making these uh, records and, and, and stuff. But so that's that's where it all came from. And so uh, um, the 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 outcome. You know, I always said, that, well, the the outcome of that was the Eagles became like the number one country <laughs> band on earth, basically, as far as I can see. You know, I love Dearly, though, mm-hmm. one of the great bands of all time. But they took all of that and infused it with a bit of rock and roll pop, you know, um, mentalities and uh, and did that. So, yeah. yeah. Was it hard to find audience, to get audiences that were receptive to what you were doing at the time? Um, yes and no. Uh, yes, in some places, uh, like that's why we came down to Austin, Texas, and played the Armadillo World Headquarters. It was, you know, it was like home. Um, but other places, like early 1970 and 71, it was like, uh, you know, rock and roll, rock and roll, you know, <laughs> screaming stage. And well, I mean, we were opening for Alice Cooper for, um, uh, rock bands, you know, in the DC area too. So yeah, but that was just uh, that was just uh, impetus for us to keep doing what we're doing, right? So you're you know asleep now is so associated with Austin. How did moving to Austin change things for the band? Well, we found a home. Uh, this was this was a town that was made for what we were doing. Um, the older folks loved us for bringing back the music that they loved, and it was very uh, sparse at this time. And the younger folks liked us because we were really good at what we did, and it was so new to them, or it was the stuff that their parents liked. But wow, it's really cool. <laughs> ah, ah, ah. So we got that whole thing, and we were the only band of that ilk that could play the quote redneck dance halls and the hippie rock joints. And that was our that was our calling card. You know. Oh, that's great. So, was there a moment that you can remember when you realized that Asleep at the Wheel was going to make it, and that this was going to be your gig for the long haul? I always felt this was what I was going to do for the rest of my life. So. You know the, you know the 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 early things like the thrilling moment of hearing a record being played on the radio, you know, driving out of the WSM AM, you know, thing, and there it was on the dang radio. That radio wave has gone out in the outer space. So that was definitely um, a a marker of of our. Uh, immortality for <laughs> I'd have to imagine over the course of 50 years there were there were periods that were more fun than others uh, 
how did you get through the hard times? Well, like I say, I just have always been one foot in front of the other. Okay, we got a problem, let's solve it. Uh, we got an obstacle, let's surmount it or avoid it. And that's just the way I always approached it. There were very dark times. There were times when I was like, what the hell, why, are, what are we doing? Um, but, you know, A, I, I rarely give up. You know, that's just one of my qualities. And B, we always had... Um, people uh, always had people who were so appreciative of what we were doing. You know, they would actually come up to us after the show and say, oh, man, you know, it's, you know, obviously it was a little club. Obviously there weren't a lot of people, but the people there were like, oh, my gosh, you know, don't stop doing this. This is so needed in, in the scene. And, and, you know, that was, that was more impetus, uh, than um, than anything, you know, right. that, that the people really wanted to hear this strange kind of conglomeration of music and instrumentals instruments that is really nobody else is doing. I mean, there might be bands that are doing similar stuff, but what we were doing was very unique, right? And it, and we are traveling around the country playing small towns all year. Uh, people said, oh, you're on, uh, when's your tour be going? I said, yeah, well, about uh, 28 years ago. And I had to stop <laughs> You know, or whatever the equation might be. Because, um, you know, uh, it was just get out there and play. And, 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 um, and my talent was to gather great musicians around me who would go out and do this. Say, hey, come on, hop on the bus. I'm doing it to this day. I'm 71 years old and hiring 30-something guys and gals and, uh, to come out and do the same thing, you know. And I can say to them, hey, I've been doing this since I was 19. And um, it was a whole lot harder back then. You got satellite TV, cell phones, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I said, it's like joining the Foreign Legion or the circus. Come on. <laughs> And that, and that clearly still works. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and, and what's interesting is, is there's such a great crop of young players all over the world that want to play this kind of music and can. So like, for instance, you know, uh, our steel player, he'll be with us for about another year is, is from Italy. I mean, he's from Rome, Italy, but he, through YouTube, he had found this music and learned how to play steel guitar really well. So, uh, yeah, it's very interesting how this all works. What do albums do for you at this point? Albums don't do much anymore. It's like, you know, we the only reason we even make them is because we tour so much and people want to buy a vinyl album and or a CD, although nowadays rare and rare to sell CDs. So, you know, the days of making an album are just um, gonna be different. Unless I don't, in other words, the streaming thing is um, is tracks, you know. Right, right. And the other thing I keep telling people is that you got to understand not just you're not just competing against yourself; you're competing against the hundred years of recorded music that is available on your on your phone. 
uh, for free. Right. And so, so it's a different, different thing. What we try to do is to make um, special or collectible, uh, you know, albums as opposed to just, okay, here's another album. Sure. Christmas in jail. Christmas in jail. Had a little too much to drink. I ain't got no bad. Can't make no bad. And I'm spending New Year's Eve in the clink. I was in the wrong lane. Feeling no pain. Suit my car to 75. Ran right into it. You can guess who. And they say I'm lucky to be alive. Merry Christmas. Now, in 97, you recorded your first Christmas album, uh, Merry Te uh, Texas Christmas, y'all. Why did you decide to do a Christmas album? Oh, Pat Clifford, our good friend Pat Clifford and Larry Hamby, they were good friends of mine who were A&R guys. And they said, you got to do a Christmas album. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> I love, love Christmas songs. And I'm Jewish, so, uh, you know, we always had to uh, uh, work on Christmas anyway. So. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, and that's why, I mean, I, the music of Christmas from is just is huge. I mean, it's a it's an entire um, genre and, and, and some of the greatest music ever has been made, both secular and religious, about Christmas. What was your background? Well, obviously, if you were you were Jewish, what was your, well, what was your background with Christmas music at that point? Well, I sang in the choirs and the choruses all through high school. I played in the band and the orchestra, so I played all of it. Yeah, you know, I loved it. I played in I played in the brass quintet, uh, so we would do you know uh, the uh, holiday time. We would do uh, baroque music, etc. Um, but the songs, I mean, are just the greatest. And I sang in every chorus and with the special choir, you know, that was because I was a good singer. So, right. And so we sang everything. And I, I just uh, uh, always, and of course, the secular stuff. I always, I always, somebody said, Well, Ray, you're Jewish and you're doing, you've done all these Christmas albums. I said, Well, I said, Well, there wouldn't be Christmas without Jews. He said, What do you mean? I said, Well, Jesus and Irving Berlin. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's Jesus's birthday. He was Jewish, and Irving Berlin, White Christmas, and all those songs. I mean, you know, um, we're happy to participate uh, in this wonderful holiday, given as it's 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 um, whether it's on a religious or a secular nature, because as we all know, there is a tie into the great you know um, tradition of uh, of the winter solstice, et cetera, et cetera. So who knows? The exact origin. It's a wonderful holiday, and it's got some of the greatest music ever. So um, we keep recording the Christmas albums, and and uh, and we we do a Christmas show every year. Usually, uh, some it's usually about a week of it, where we get inflatable Santas and uh, adorn the stage, and uh, and it's really a lot of fun. Yeah. It did uh, Bob Wills ever record Christmas music? He did that a couple of songs. Yeah, we do the one, uh, Hooray, Hooray, Santa's on his way. Hooray, Christmas 
have to tell you I, I'm, that uh, I, I interviewed la- a year or so ago. There's a filmmaker from uh, Canada who did a documentary, uh, Dreaming of a Jewish Christmas, uh, talking about both the history of, uh, of, of Jewish songwriters writing Christmas music and also, you know, just in the history of, you know, Jew. I mean, he was doing it from Canada, but to a great degree, a lot of his, the people he was talking to were American, but talking about the relationship of, you know, of Jews trying to find their place in this holiday. And uh, it's, it's really interesting. It's, it's on CBC in Canada, but... Um, yeah, they do great work up there. But it, yeah, it's a um, it's such an interesting uh, place because American popular music was based on uh, on immigrant uh, Jewish immigrant uh, experience, and um, and my experience, of course, being a well on my mother's side, I guess we're I'm a fourth generation American, or uh, you know. Um, it's, you know, being born in, born in 1951, the American experience was the television. So we, you know, we were one of the first families on the block that had TV. And so from, and, and dad got a TV in 1951 when I was born. So I never did not have a television. And the whole image of Roy Rogers, Gene Autry, et cetera, et cetera, they were our, uh, role models. Uh, I was in a reform synagogue, and so Christmas was uh, celebrated secondary to Hanukkah. You know. But it was the Americanization, the American Jew, like I say, you know. Right. Uh, it's a different experience than any other uh, because uh, this is a homogeneous uh, country, and we can uh, be part of each other. And the whole idea was ecumenical. You know, and and you know, and so I've gone to uh, Hanukkah and and Passover celebrations with Gentiles who wonder, experience, what is this? You know, what is it about? I said, well, it's history. You know, right? History of a people. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, I'll continue to do Christmas stuff. I love it. Yeah. On that first, on that album, you were you did back to back a high lonesome version of Silent Night followed by a swing version of Silent Night. Why, why not pick one or the other in that case? Well, that's one of the, one of those songs that is just, um, so iconic. I've always said a great song is a song that can be done in any style and still hold its weight. So that's what, that's my opinion on all songs. So if in my, that's how I judge a song. Okay. If it's that good, all you got to do is put a beat to it and it's a swing or a, and it's a rockabilly. I mean, so that was, uh, that was uh, my idea of, uh, hey, let's swing this song. to admit that was that that very thought was part of the reason i started to uh do a podcast on christmas music and paid attention to christmas music because it always struck me as a real musician's test 
how can you know can you take this material that everybody knows and turn it into a song that has a reason to exist and if you're a songwriter can you take this incredibly familiar body of material and figure out how to make something that has a reason to be and uh, that in a lot of ways you can really hear a musician's musicianship a musician's creativity musician's imagination by hearing what they do with this very familiar music yeah and it was really cool to uh uh research all this because you know yeah i knew a lot of the songs and everything but we're gonna oh my god you know i've got a whole section of christmas cds that tall you know yeah because uh, uh, everybody's done them and uh it's really fun to uh to see how uh uh how how the people have approached it you know for right. better or worse yeah uh, I love the novelty stuff, you know, that's why we did Christmas in jail and we had a great video on that. It was just fantastic. And, uh, I, I love those, those kind of songs yeah. and they go over great live. People just love hearing them. Yeah. Yeah. I have, I've always thought that the worst Christmas song is the song you forget existed. Uh, the one where you can literally, you can, I always think like you can hear the boardroom meeting where people triangulate what needs to happen and needs to happen to make this, make this work and how it's going to hit this market and that market. And it, it always ends up sounding like a boardroom. And uh, <laughs> so you, yeah, you, my, 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 I think one of the great songs is the one that John D. Graham wrote called I hate Christmas, you know, and cause it's the stinger is, you know, the, you have to hear the whole verse until, Oh, Oh, he doesn't really hate Christmas. Pretty lights on a string. Wrap the town in red and green In the church Little children sing Silent night All right I hate Christmas That's a that's a great song and uh, uh, and uh, un under under appreciated. Uh, my friends, the uh, folk uke, uh, which is Willie Nelson's daughter and uh, and Arlo Guthrie's daughter, I think one of the Guthries. They have a great song called "All I Want for Christmas Is for You to Leave." Ah 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 ah. Play it on play it on your podcast. Uh, people will love it. I will absolutely look for it. I hear bells and I see sleighs. Looks like Santa's on his way. And soon you will be too. Or my Christmas will be blue. Sugar plums danced in our heads. Crushed our brains and we were wet. We used to deck the hall. We just hit the walls I don't want your kisses on New Year's Eve All I want for Christmas is you to leave Now, you went on and made a second Christmas album, Santa Loves to Boogie. So, we're... we're three of them. We did three. Is, is the third 
Uh, is that songs from the other ones, or is that a third album of new material? Third album of new material. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's, uh, what's it called? We have Santa Loves the Boogie, and then uh, Texas uh, Christmas. Uh, Night. <laughs> um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's great ones. There's a Dale Watson uh, duet on the, that's on one of them. It's on Santa Loves the Boogie. Yeah, that's on the Hot Christmas Night. That's a good yeah. one. And I did one with Kevin Fowler. I think that's on the other one called. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it was just, there's so much material. I think we've redone uh, Silent Night. I think I've redone that. Because you know, live we do it. I just love singing it. And it's just, uh, you know, the one I think with Willie Nelson or Don Walser, I think, uh, and again, these are classic, classic uh, uh, combinations. Now, sorry, I have, to, I have to ask: Do Christmas albums sell well? Um, not, not, not overwhelmingly, but they do every every year. They do sell. You know? Yeah, uh, it's more importantly. I have friends uh, who said, you know, when we were growing up, every Christmas we put on your Merry Texas Christmas, y'all. That was the family's go-to record. I said, well, that that's that makes it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but as far as yeah, I mean, they make money. Uh, you know, it's, again, we not a lot. Sure. Now you've recorded uh, pretty paper with Willie on two of the albums. First, why cut it twice, and then also tell me about singing with Willie Nelson. Well, you know. He's my pal, man. I've, I've been known Willie for 50 years and I'm always there to do it. I just love that song. And yeah, so we just included it again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, I think I changed it a little. I think it's a little different. Yeah. I think I sang them. Uh, but yeah, this is one of the greatest songs. I mean, you know, it's about. You know, it's about a guy who, with no legs who is nailed to a board. Uh, back in the 50s, I still remember going to downtown Philadelphia and seeing these guys, same thing. And he was selling paper, stationery, and pencils. To and, and Willie makes this incredible song about this crippled guy. You don't think that's what it is. Right. You know, but that's where the inspiration came from. It was outside of the Leonard's department store. Wow. And um, to me, that's it's just like a perfect song. And I just, I, I couldn't see doing a Christmas album without doing some version of it. That's how much I enjoy it. Pretty ribbons of blue Wrap your presents To your darling from you Pretty pencils To write I love you Pretty paper Pretty ribbons of blue What can you tell me about singing with Willie and about Willie as a singer that you kind of that you learned from working with him? 
that I wouldn't necessarily hear just as somebody listening to his records or watching the shows? Well, he, he phrases like none other. You know, this is a man who, who, who made uh, a career out of phrasing like no other. Um, so what it is, is, uh, you have to understand his cadence, which is something that you just have to understand. And, and I've been so fortunate to have shared the stage with him so many times, you know, back we started a little shitty ass club. So it was like, you know, jump up. So, and also I've watched him as he, you know, advanced his, his abilities, so anyway, it's always paying close attention because he's very rarely does it the same twice. You know? His subtlety is just, um, you know, um, intriguing. And I owe a lot of my phrasing to him because his use of, of certain techniques are, are, are just ingrained, you know, and they go, oh, oh, that's Willie. I'm going, oh, why do I say, oh, that's Willie. <laughs> Oh, that's and great. A lot of it, a lot of it is a uh, disrespect for the norm. It's like you don't have to do it that way. Yeah, uh, it's that being able to say, uh, "I'm going to try a different way and see how that works." He, um, he 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 doesn't break meter, but he's always there um, to um, to um, he's. He's always uh, there before you are. <laughs> That's great. I, I really enjoy seeing Willie these days because the last couple of times it almost sounded like a jazz singer. His phrasing was so personal and was so fresh and was so clearly plugged into the musical moment. And what? It, how did he hear the song in that moment? That's like that was. It was really awesome. Yeah, yeah. Of course, his you know his facilities have gone down uh, in the last, mostly in the last two years, I would say. Mm -hmm. uh, his faculties, excuse me. And but yeah, that's what it is. It's he is uh, the way you deal with time is what it's all about, and that's his his um, yeah. That's where the jazz thing comes in with Willie. It's right. all about time, you know, how he deals with time. But he's always there. It's like a, a Jimmy Vaughn and them were backing him up on something years ago. They did a blues album. And he was, I was with Jimmy. He said, I'm nervous. I said, here's the deal, Jim. Just play. It's going to sound like he, he's wrong, but he's not. He'll come in when he's going to come in, and he doesn't break meter. He'll, he'll follow the four-bar, four-beat pattern. It's just he'll come in somewhere else, and you're going, oh, my God, am I supposed to jump? Uh, oh, no, no, just keep going. And that's how he does it. Wow. To wrap up here, is there something about recording a Christmas album that's different from recording other albums? I'd say yeah. First of all, for the for for the folks who who have a religious connection to it, I suppose it means something a lot in that respect. Uh, I I do. I mean, you know, when you're singing Silent Night, for instance, um, it it brings there's a spirituality to that song, which um, is uh, available to everybody. You know, I understand that the it is about Jesus. It's about the you know uh, the thing, but the it evokes this uh, scene 
of Silent Night, Holy Night, all this kind of, you know, uh, you know, of this, you just, you can see it, you know, and the stars out and there's snow on the ground and, you know, whatever. And it, to me, that's why the song's great. So yeah, in that respect. And then of course, it's a holiday and holidays are celebrated with song and dance, you know, as far as I can concern, one part. So you have the secular and you have the religious. And to me, you also have what I call the uh, seasonal. You know, it's it's a seasonal thing. The, the, the origin of the winter solstice and everything was you're in this you're in this thing where where you know where you're coming out of the the dark time of year and we're going to be having a spring etc and we're celebrating this part of, of of the season and uh whether uh jesus was actually born on december 25th or not i'm not going to uh, uh, get into that discussion if you want to believe it that's great uh, because they probably the calendars were all different there anyway. Right. <laughs> I don't think there was a, I don't think there was a December in uh, the year uh, uh, one. Right. But I. <laughs> <laughs> so whatever the case may be, um, it is a celebration of also one of the most important figures in human history. You know, for whatever you want to think uh, about Jesus' role in um, in in your religion. It is the most important uh, human being of the last uh, 2,000 years, for sure. Right. Yeah. I have to say, one of the things I always think about is that that might, you know, might, I thought might be relevant in this conversation is one of the things I find most important about Christmas music is the sort of the, the, the social or the communal element. The idea that sort of regardless of what you believe, one of the things this holiday does is bring people together and the music brings people together. And that idea of sort of, of a shared, of, of a shared moment and a shared experience strikes me as for me, the most valuable part and the most exciting part of Christmas and Christmas yeah. music. Well, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. I yeah. mean, what's, what's better, what's better than that? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, absolutely. So that's the spiritual end of it. Whether or not, you know, uh, that's my, my, again, my connection, my spiritual connection with, with Chris, uh, Christmas is that it's, it's, it's the message of, of Christ, which is in, indisputably one of the, uh, one of the greatest achievements mankind could ever reach, which we have not. Uh, if the words of that Jesus said, you know, if, if you follow them, boy, there wouldn't be no Ukraine uh, this year. There wouldn't be no, you know. Uh, Palestinian, there wouldn't be anything uh, of that sort. So we just have to um, we just have to uh, hope that the message of Christmas is one of unification and glorifying the human condition in its best light. Silent night, holy night, Thanks to Ray Benson of Asleep at the Wheel for the time and the talk. I've interviewed Ray a few times and was struck each time how the interviews never felt scripted or wrote. One was in front of an audience, 
so he was at least partly in performance mode that day. But between COVID and the celebration of 50-plus years in the rock and roll game, Benson was clearly feeling a little reflective when we talked. Asleep at the Wheel is on tour, certainly all summer and into the rest of the year. Go to asleepatthewheel.com slash tours to see if they're coming to your town. And if they're not, they probably will be. As Benson said, touring is where the money is these days. And really, as much fun as their records are, their music is really meant to be heard live. As always, thanks to you for listening. If you like what you hear, share it. I'm really proud of 12 Songs. I would love for more people to hear what we're doing here. If you haven't already done so, follow 12 Songs wherever you get your podcast content. We're on all the platforms. If you get yours from Apple, how about throwing us a five-star review? Obviously, go with what you feel, but all that helps to make the algorithms work for us. Let's finish with Willie Nelson singing his version of Pretty Paper. We'll be back in your feed next week. Talk to you then. your presence to your darling from you pretty pencils to write I 